the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory, Glory to, you, to you, Lord, Lord Christ. Christ. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they didn't know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord, Lord Christ. Christ. As we remain standing, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your agony in the garden, that you, as a man, danced up to the edge of despair, stayed faithful and true. We thank you for your willingness to be betrayed, to go to death on the cross, to pay the price for our sins. We thank you for the great measure of your love shown on that dreadful night. And we praise you. In your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Last week, we kicked off a series of sermons called Songs of Sorrow and Hope. Each week during this season of Lent, we will take a look at one of the more than 50 psalms of lament that are contained in the book of the Psalms. As I explained last week, these psalms address topics as wide-ranging as physical suffering, the agony of broken relationships, the burden of guilt, anger in the face of injustice, family dysfunction, and impending death. In other words, these prayers take us into just about every dark corner of human experience while at the same time placing us firmly in God's presence. I want to encourage you, if you miss a sermon in this series, please go back and listen to it online. Each week we'll be focusing on a different psalm, but the reflections, they'll all be intertwined and they'll be most helpful when taken as a whole. I believe that we live in a day that is desperate, not just for the language of lament, but for the deep truths about God and humanity that undergird this uniquely biblical practice. So this morning we're going to join the psalmist Asaph as he dances right up to the edge of despair over the course of a sleepless night. We will see him face reality with brutal honesty, then radically reorient his attention, and ultimately learn to walk the way of remembering. I hope you'll turn there with me to Psalm 77. It's on page 488 in those red Bibles. And we begin with Asaph as he faces reality. <clears throat> Verse 1, I cry aloud to God. 
aloud to God and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble I seek the Lord. In the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. I want you to notice three things here in these opening verses. And the first is quite simple. The psalmist is brutally honest about his trouble and his sense of despair. We do no favors to ourselves, to God, or to the world by hiding from hard things. What the Psalms of Lament teach us is to speak truthfully about the evils of the world and the sorrows of our hearts. Now, this is not to say that Christians cannot be joyful, hopeful people. This is simply an invitation to honesty in every season. When life is challenging or tragedy strikes, it's not good for our souls to sugarcoat or to downplay our despair. Sometimes the most helpful thing we can do is to admit that we are sad or lonely or angry at our circumstances. But we don't stop there. The second thing to notice in these opening lines is that in his despair, the psalmist turns to God. He doesn't run from God. He sets his sorrows before him, and he says, what are you going to do about this? One of the things that biblical lament teaches us is that God is ultimately responsible for all things. Now, this is different from saying that he's ultimately in control of all things, which, of course, we also believe. What I mean by saying that God is responsible is this. God created everything, the universe in which we live, the world we inhabit, the spiritual beings that occupy time and space in ways that we cannot see. He made all that is good. He also made all that is evil. Is God, therefore, evil? Well, of course not. Evil is what happens when creatures reject God and attempt to usurp his power. But evil happens in God's creation and on his watch. This means that God has to be involved if evil is ever to be eradicated and brokenness healed. There's no other solution. It is ultimately God's problem. And that's what I mean by saying that God is responsible the problem with our modern world is that we think we can deal with evil and brokenness apart from God. Secular ideologies place the burden of evil on impersonal systems or individuals or groups of people they don't like. Scripture, however, Scripture turns to God in the face of evil, sorrow, and despair and says, what are you going to do about this? Now, this is not to say that we are not responsible for our actions or that Satan is not responsible for his. We are responsible and will be held accountable. Our sin is our own. We can't blame God for our failures. Satan, too, is responsible and will one day be destroyed. What I'm saying is that God is ultimately responsible for dealing with the problem of sin, destroying Satan, and redeeming creation. Now, why is it important to say all of this? Well, it reminds us who is in charge, and it forces us to accept that we are not. To lament is to admit your powerlessness, your weakness, your inability. 
It's also to admit your complicity in evil and rebellion. We aren't innocent. We need to be rescued from ourselves, not just from this evil world. Part of what happens in lament is that we say to God, I've done all I can and it's not enough. What are you going to do? Lament marks the end of ourselves and the beginning of a real faith in God. It opens us up to the goodness and love of the God who is responsible for all things. So the first thing to notice in these opening lines is the brutal honesty of the author. He looks despair in the eye and he names it. The second thing to notice is that he turns to God in the face of his despair because he knows it is God who is ultimately responsible. Only he can give relief. The third thing to notice at the beginning of Psalm 77 is that when the psalmist turns to God, God is nowhere to be found. That hits us like a punch in the gut. But listen to how Asaph describes his experience in verses 4 to 9. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled I can't speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? The psalmist has endured what is most likely a string of sleepless nights, grasping for God, but never finding his hand, seeking God, but not receiving consolation. And so he turns inward. He looks to his own heart to find God's love, but it's not there. He tries to sing away his sorrow by recalling a song from better days, but he can't find the words. His heart is empty. There's no wellspring of goodness there. He's dried up. Sometimes when we look for God, we can't find him. Sometimes when we pray, He's silent in response. Sometimes when we need him most, he is most distant. That was the case for our psalmist, and it led him to some very hard questions. He asks if perhaps God has rescinded his covenant love. He wonders if God has shut down his compassion and cut him off forever. Asaph dances right along the edge of despair. I wonder if you've ever had a night like this. I guess as most of you have. Sleepless nights, they're not a common feature of life for me, but I certainly have them. They can be fueled over anxiety, over, uh, by anxiety over church-related matters or just the pressure of having too many things on my plate. So I'll admit, sleepless nights used to make me angry. They made me feel like a failure. Like I couldn't handle the stress of life. Like I was weak or I was doing something wrong. Eventually, I realized that I was weak and that I couldn't handle the stress of life. 
But this didn't mean that I was a failure or that I was doing something wrong. Sleepless nights, they were simply verification of my humanity. And I came to understand that they were an invitation as well, an invitation to speak with God about those things that were keeping me up. Sleeplessness has a place in God's economy, and I want to encourage you to use it. Treat it as a severe mercy and as an invitation to honest communication with God. Just be warned that He will not always turn up to give you comfort during those nights. This psalm begins by facing reality. This includes being honest about life's circumstances, turning to God with the realization that if anything can be done, He is the only one to do it, and then accepting the fact that sometimes, sometimes God is silent in our times of despair. He will not always appear to comfort us. Well, thank God the psalm doesn't end at verse 9. It continues at verse 10, where something shifts. It's here that a radical reorientation occurs. Listen to verses 10 to 12. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. So in verses 4 through 9 that precede this, the psalmist turned inward, right? He was looking for evidence of God's faithfulness to him. But when he looked, there was nothing there. Looking within was no help. The implication of verses 4 to 9, as one commentary notes, is that purely personal experience is too insecure a foundation on which to build a doctrine of God. We feel one way one day, another way another day. On a calm, trouble-free day, the answer to the questions in verses 7 to 9 would be obvious. Of course God hasn't abandoned me. But in this apparently prolonged period of soul-destroying adversity, the psalmist can ask questions, but on the basis of experience cannot venture a sure answer. Asaph needs more than his heart can give him. He needs more than his own experience. He needs to be reminded of the objective reality and the activity of God. And for this reason, in verse 10, he reorients. He turns his attention to God's deeds of old, his actions on behalf of his people throughout history. What's happening here is that the psalmist is removing himself from center stage. He's removing himself from center stage. Now, when life is hard, our tendency is to become increasingly self-absorbed. The stage darkens, and we find ourselves uh, out front and center, standing in the circle of a single spotlight, soliloquizing about our misery. The problem is that when you're standing in a spotlight, everything else around you is dark. You can't see anything but yourself. You can't orient yourself to reality. You dare not take a step outside the circle of light for fear that you'll fall off the stage. But that is precisely what we must do. The psalmist recognizes what's happening, and so at verse 10, he steps back and he says to God, okay, you take center stage. You take center stage. 
when we can't find God in our hearts and when He doesn't appear to comfort us in times of prayer, we can find Him in the story of Scripture, in the creeds of the church, and in the history of His people. Now, there's a vitally important principle here. We don't have the resources that we need on our own to weather the worst of times. We need the stories of God's faithfulness and Scripture. We need to hear how He turned up for Abraham, Hagar, Joseph, Gideon, Esther, Ruth, and David. We need the collective memory of God's people to hold us up and to see us through. When the psalmist hits rock bottom, he picks up Scripture and he starts to read. Now, I don't think he was looking for inspiration or even consolation at that point. He had given up on both. He was looking for history, for the objective work of God down through the ages to see if there was something to hold on to, some hope to grab hold of. In verses 1 through 9 of this psalm, the first person singular dominates. It's all I, me, and my. This is necessary as the psalmist faces reality and pours out his grief to God. In verses 10 to 11, however, the psalmist reorients, stepping out of the spotlight and turning his attention to God. Starting at verse 12, you'll notice the language shifts from I to you, all in reference to God. Having reoriented himself, Asaph now sets out to walk the way of remembering in verse 13. He begins by saying, your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. We don't know what he's feeling when he's saying these words, but we do know that no longer is the psalmist the center of the story. God is. And the psalmist's perspective is broadened, stretching back hundreds and hundreds of years. Now that he's stepped out of that tiny circle of light shining brightly on his misery, the psalmist sees so much more of reality. He then turns in verses 16 to 20 to tell the story of the Exodus, the whole story of the Exodus, with incredible poetic concision and compression. Verse 16, when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, they trembled. This is the crossing at the Red Sea when God parted the water and led his people out of captivity. Then came God's revelation of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, where he surrounded the mountain for 40 days with clouds, and he shook the ground with an earthquake. Verse 17, the clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side, the crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, your lightnings lighted up the world, the earth trembled and shook. Finally, 40 years later, God parted the water again, this time the Jordan River, And he led his people into the land he'd promised. Verse 19, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. 
With this incredible crescendo, the psalm just simply ends. Asaph, he, he doesn't return to answer the awkward questions of verses 7 through 9. He doesn't reassure us that he feels so much better now. He doesn't tell us that life improved once his perspective changed. He leaves us hanging. And I think he does so because in situations of deep despair, answers don't come quickly. Comfort takes time. Peace, it trickles in. This psalm, like Psalm 102 last week, it's a compression of both thought and time. Lament is never a quick fix. So he leaves us hanging, but he does so with an inescapably hope-filled image. Remember in the agonizing opening lines of this psalm, Asaph described a sleepless night in which God refused to grasp his outstretched hand. He felt abandoned. God was invisible. Well, here in verse 20, after considering the story of the Exodus, he concludes that God led his people like a flock. How? By the hand of Moses and Aaron. He comes back to this imagery. The outstretched hand of his people had been clasped, not by God himself directly, but by those God appointed to shepherd them. God's footprints might not have been visible, as he says in verse 19, but Asaph recognizes that God was there all along, just as he will be for him. He knows that he's part of the people of God. Their history is his history. God's faithfulness to them signals God's ultimate faithfulness to him. He may not hear from God directly. He may not receive consolation. There may not be a wave of peace that pours over him, but he knows that the unseen God is active. One of the things that biblical lament teaches us to do is to set ourselves down in the larger community of God's covenant people, both historically through the revelation of God in Scripture and the history of the church, and presently in the life of our local church community. There are times when we need others to carry us. We need the voices of those who are long dead bearing testimony to God's work throughout the ages, and we need the hands of those around us to hold us up when God is quiet. By the end of the psalm, God's goodness in the past has set up camp in the presence of his absence. And we're left not with a sense of abandonment, but with a sense of God's all-encompassing power and enduring care for his people. And do you know what? Our hope today has more to hold on to than this. While Asaph recalled the story of the Exodus, we recall the story of the Christ. He is our consolation. His hands and feet, nail-scarred, are the hands and feet of God himself. Though we no longer see his footprints, the disciples walked in them for three years. 
He even joined us in dancing up to the edge of despair in the garden on that night before he died, but he held fast, walked the way of the cross, and rose from the dead so that we might join him forever in the presence of God the Father. There will be long nights of lament. There will be long nights of lament, but in the morning, Jesus still reigns. And though we may not see his footprints, he is present and he is mighty to save. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you teach us to lament? Would you teach us to face reality honestly and humbly? Would you lead us to reorient, to step out of center stage and allow you to occupy the spotlight? May we learn to walk the way of remembering and to allow your people to hold us up. In doing so, may we be reminded of your presence and of your power, even though we do not always feel the touch of your hand. Amen.